HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, people of color-owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership, a $500 value, is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. Today's program is brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and heritage. For more information, visit meusa.com. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host and tour guide, Capri Cafaro. Now, today's episode is a special one for me because, at least in part, it touches on my ethnic heritage and identity as an Italian-American from the Midwest. Throughout the season so far, we've been talking about how different cultures have shaped the dynamic and diverse traditions that make up Midwestern foodways. Today, we are turning our attention to old world influences, focusing on the impact of Southern European immigrants, particularly Greeks and Italians, on today's Midwestern food landscape. We have some great guests for you coming up, and I'm also going to share a little bit of my own story with you as well. So let's get right to it. First up today is Anne Beck. Anne is the author of the upcoming book, Sweet Greeks, First-Generation Immigrant Confectioners in the Heartland. She is indeed a Greek-American from Illinois who has firsthand knowledge of growing up in a candy-making family. Anne, thanks for, for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed hearing about your story and um, really opened up my eyes uh, about uh, the diversity in Greek food traditions. Uh, you know, most of the time, at least in, in my head, 
Uh, candy is not the first thing that I think of when I think of Greek food. People think of, you know, baklava or spanakopita or whatever these, you know, sort of yeah. traditional, you know, maybe stereotypical Italian treat. Excuse me, Greek treats. I got Italians right. on the brain too today. Um, yeah. But it, Greeks apparently have a big tradition in confectionery. So um, tell tell us about how Greeks particularly in the Midwest, came to be confectioners? Um, Interesting question, because my sister and I um, co-own our family confectionery and restaurant, and we get the question all the time, oh, did your grandfather make candy in Greece? And no, Uh, not only did they not make candy, they were so far from it. But um, if I could just back up a little bit, I just want to talk about most of the Greeks who came to America uh, were would they were subsistence farmers and they mm-hmm. lived primarily in the Peloponnese in the mountains uh, in tiny villages and the Peloponnese is kind of in the middle of the the mainland of Greece and there were a lot of catalysts that propelled males primarily to come to America particularly starting uh, in larger numbers at the end of the 1800s. And they came because Greece as a a country um, was kind of out of money. They had fought many, many wars. Uh, The farmers could hardly make a living on small plots of land. They had large families. And then America as a country was beckoning immigrants uh, from around the world, but particularly at the end of the 1800s from Southeastern Europe. Mm -hmm. So along with Italians, Greeks, Jews, Russians, um, Bulgarians, Albanians, uh, they came to America. And between, um, I would say, 1900 and 1930, there were almost uh, 400,000 Greeks uh, who came to America, and most of those were males. Uh, the, The women stayed at home in their country. And the immigrants primarily went initially to the urban areas like New York City and Massachusetts. There was a port in New Orleans and a lot went to Chicago, which is where I kind of started my journey uh, with my grandfather who ended up in a small town in the middle of the cornfields. Um, And that's one of the aspects I wanted to focus on in my research and with my book were just the small town America Uh, settlements of primarily even a family or one Greek male who would come by himself to a town and start a business uh, without knowing the language or, you know, really knowing even how to make candy. And so you're wondering, again, how did they learn how to make candy? So in Chicago, uh, which is kind of where our story is in the Midwest. Uh, a lot of the Greeks started out uh, as young men coming over and they were shoe shiners because before automobiles, horse and drawn carriages, everybody needed you know to clean their shoes. But they moved into vegetable and fruit peddling along with the Italians uh, because uh, there was a minimal startup expense. They could purchase their products and put them on a cart. Uh, They didn't need to be very fluent in English, and they could also work independently, which for the Greeks particularly was very appealing. They weren't really uh, factory types of workers, Mm -hmm. even though some did work in factories. But uh, the, the Italians were also peddling in Chicago at the time, and although they were competing against each other, they kind of banded together and started the Peddlers Protective Association. But Interesting. What happened, 
Yeah, but what happened with the Greeks is I think they were very energetic and aggressive and they got out there earlier um, and they decided, you know, we're going to make this work. But what was interesting in Chicago uh, as early as um, 1869, there were two Greeks, one from Sparta and one from Smyrna, who had established a candy shop um, and they started employing the young Greek immigrant um, young men. They... um, started learning how to make candy. And at the time in Chicago, there were Germans, there were French, there were Swiss, there were Italians. A lot of people could make candy. Uh, And there were also uh, books that could be uh, addressed to learn how to make candy. And so these two Greek gentlemen um, helped out people to make candy, the young men. They also uh, taught Christos Tosconis from Tatinia to make candy, and he immigrated uh, to America in 1873 and first sold his fruits and candy from a cart in New York, and then he went to Chicago. But in 1875, he returned to Greece, and he brought five men over to the Windy City, and he helped them get established as confectioners. And it is estimated that between 1870 and 1880, he brought over a 1,000 young Greek men. And so wow. Chi- I know, right? So in Chicago, that's where the young men started making candy. But what was very cool is then these men branched out, and this will address your uh, neck of the woods growing up. They went out to the, to the rest of the Midwest in Illinois to small towns and, and smaller urban areas, Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and even into upstate New York. So what happened then was the, the city of Chicago kind of became that epicenter for candy making with the groups. Right. Well, and, and I know that to this day, when you think about candy making on an industrial scale, Chicago and then, uh, you know, the Philadelphia area, but are the two kind of epicenters in the United States of candy manufacturing. Uh, And and maybe that's even traced to these kind of of traditions as well with that Mm -hmm. um, concentration of individuals and ethnicities that were able to make candy. Um, You know, as you mentioned, the the Germans who, uh, you know, I think if, I think maybe uh, I had uh, understood this, that Germans also helped the Greeks learn the trade. I think the Greeks learned the trade from whomever would teach them. Uh, Fair enough. Because obviously, yeah, they weren't weren't in business. Um, And, you know, they they used cookbooks, you know, because candy had been uh, made, you know, the Yankees, quote unquote, uh, had started (laughs) making candy. It started to be... um, visible in cookbooks, home cookbooks, um, you know, early on. And I think that, yeah, the the, the domestic cookbooks um, started in the late 1800s. And even on the East Coast, uh, there were uh, cooking schools. And one of our central Illinois Greek men uh, went back to Boston to learn how to make candy. And in turn, then he came to Champaign-Urbana, where the University of Illinois is, and he taught Mm -hmm. most of the Greeks in central Illinois how to make candy, but he had been formally trained. So that was kind of exciting. Yeah. So So, anyway, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, you you started this conversation off about your grandfather not making uh, candy back in Greece. Right. So how did how did he and your family 
um, emblematic of, of maybe Greek Americans in the Midwest come to come to being confectioners? My grandfather uh, left his home and he came to Chicago in 1901 and got on the train and went south to Champaign-Urbana to meet uh, his relative who had been in the area in Champaign-Urbana around uh, five or six years. And they actually uh, had started a fruit business and then they went into candies after this man, Mr. Vicky, learned how to make candy. So my grandfather uh, ended up in Tuscola, Illinois, which is literally in the middle of a cornfield, and he apprenticed with them for a while, and he decided that was that was the place for him. So they uh, told him he could purchase the business for $500, so he went out west and worked on the railroad for, it is said, like $1.50 a day. And uh, a lot of Greeks and other ethnic groups worked on the railroads in the West to to raise some money. My grandfather came back and in 1904 bought the business. And he was in business for many, many decades. So he he learned uh, as he went along. Uh, Mr. Vakey taught him. There was also this great book uh, by Mr. Rigby. Uh, which my sister and I still use. That was my grandfather's book. And not only does it have wonderful recipes for caramels and chocolates and brittles and whorehound and lovely old-fashioned candies, but it also will give you such lovely ideas about how to decorate your windows, uh, which if you know the big, big old buildings um, are huge, but it also helps, it helps them be in business. You know, it would give them tips for how much inventory to purchase um, or how to uh, make your product stretch or what you should sell at Christmas versus Easter. Those I love this. Is this a book you can still get? Um, it'll be out in the fall. Oh, Mr. Rigby. Yes, yes. it is. It is on Amazon. Yeah, it's oh, great. Oh, no kidding. I'm going no, to I'm have to look this yeah. up because that sounds fascinating and it I'm is. always looking for new recipes and um, just again, as you said, the... the um, sort of passing on those tricks of the trade of, of how to decorate yeah. your windows. That's such a big yeah. part of retail and, and attracting people into your store and creating oh, that yeah. individual identity. Uh, so you guys are still in operation today, we, right? We, we are, uh, dis- despite it all, yes. <laughs> how, how many Greek confectioners would you say are left in the Midwest? That's a good question. Um, after World War II, uh, in Chicago, there were three to 4,000, and it uh, went down to about three or 400. Partly, I think, because uh, of the Walgreens and the uh, big box, you know, kind of drugstores opened up their own soda fountains, uh, which, you know, the Greeks also kind of morphed into. Right. So I think what happened after World War II is the second generation of Greeks uh, decided, you know, maybe that wasn't for them as a lot of labor. Uh, the other challenge that we all had, and I'm old enough to remember this, is, you know, when McDonald's came into being and the big box stores, a lot of businesses uh, where these uh, confectionaries and soda fountain and, you know, diner types of places moved out to the interstates and downtowns started dying literally so a lot of um a lot of them just closed i would guess maybe there have been suggestions there might be 50 left across the country that are original um to the first generations uh your your part of the the 
world in Northeast uh, Ohio, Daffins, right. uh, is still in business. They opened up in 1903. Uh, and Gorance is your other, um, I guess, near and dear to your heart. They're the I, second. I love my Gorance. I, yeah. I must have it. Yes. Yeah, I love Daffins too, but Gorance is my favorite. Yeah, they're second generation um, Greeks, and and they are they are still around. There are uh, there's the Anthony Thomas Candy Company in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. Uh, there's the Puffless uh, family with the Olympia Candy Kitchen in Goshen, Indiana. Uh, I have two dear dear friends, the Canna Lake sisters in Knife River, Minnesota, who are third generation confectioners. Uh, there's the Zaharikos in Columbus, Indiana. Uh, Crown Candy in St. Louis, which has been around for a long, long time. And then we have Flesser's Candy Kitchen in Tuscola, Illinois. So there are others, um, and I, I'm still discovering them. So so that's a very exciting uh, aspect of, of doing all of this research. And I, I urge folks out there that if you have an original uh, Greek family who's still making candy, uh, let me know. Certainly, well, I can I can yeah. definitely vouch for both Gorns and Daffins that they still make fantastic yeah. candy. Good. And in the process of doing the show, I I learned that you know the, that they were um, you know basically founded by Greeks, which something yes. I did not know having consumed know. this candy for forty years. I, know. I had no idea. So I've I personally learned something new, and now I yeah. have a whole new. Uh, appreciation for things that I consume usually now only on holidays. Um, now that now that I'm a grown adult, I you know uh-huh. you got your Easter and your Christmas and yeah. you know that's it. But yeah. um, I, is there any kind of candy specifically that you make that is you know unique to your food tradition or that might identify might um, make someone who came into your store say oh. This is different. This is this may be Greek or um, something I couldn't necessarily find uh, in another candy store. Um, not really. I will say what makes us different and what makes Daffins and and everybody different is that it is homemade. You know, it is homemade from start to finish. Mm-hmm. So most of us um, make what we call the kind of traditional. Candies. I would, and again, they're not Greek per se. Um, right. You know, Greek candy is um, makes me think of like sesame brittle, which I, you know, maybe they some people make that on the East Coast. We don't make that where we are because nobody really would appreciate what it is. Um, so we no, we make the good old uh, fashioned candies that that are, you know, you remember growing up, like, you know, peanut brittles, uh, we make chocolates, we make fudge, we make, um, yeah, all kinds of lovely caramels and, and things. So there's, that, yeah. That is why I find this particular story so interesting and uh, yeah. about how basically, uh, you know, an ethnic group had really contributed to something that we ultimately just, you know, see as American. You know, exactly. as, as part of our American landscape and exactly. part of our, our landscape within the Midwest mm-hmm. are these, you know, regional candy companies that we all savor and you know, they're special to us because they're local and we, we recognize that they're homemade. But, uh, you know, at least in my experience, and it sounds like in, in yours, having done this for generations in your family, mm-hmm. it, it isn't about, you know, um, a quote unquote Greek flavor, but it's the yeah. fact that it's, it is a 
immigrant group that produced something that ultimately became part of the Heartland's palette. And that is why I think this is such an interesting story. That's exactly it. They, they adapted and, and made it their own. And, um, they became part of the, the iconography of, you know, soda fountains and candy stores in a very short time, uh, within even a first generation. Right. And those those things like soda fountains are something that we absolutely associate, at least uh, from a nostalgia perspective with yeah. Main Street USA and, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of the Midwestern Americana. Um, so interesting. I, I just love I your story. And I, you. I love this story of Greeks making candy. And mm-hmm. um, maybe it's just because I have my own appreciation again for, for this this kind of chocolate and the quality that's there. And, yeah. and now I see it in a whole new light. So, um, Amy, I'm so happy that you could be with us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And, and there are those of us who are still out there and now we're called artisan chocolatiers. Aha. I How love fun that. Is that? <laughs> How I, fun I is that? It. I know. Uh, it's great. Thank you so oh, much. Thank you, Anne. I appreciate you being with us. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and heritage. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of small farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best-tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for being the number one importer of Swiss Gruyere in the United States, in addition to many other specialty cheeses, including premium Kaltbach cave-age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Well, we're now going to turn to a subject close to my heart, Italians and Italian-Americans, and how our food has become part of the Midwest and its foodways. I'm going to talk about my personal story a little bit later, but before I do, I want to bring in an old friend to provide some context. Pat O'Boyle is the co-host of the Italian-American podcast, a member of the Salerno Food Fundamentalist Circle, and active in many, many more Italian-American organizations. People who know him call him a walking encyclopedia of all things Italian-American, which is why he is here with us today on Eat Your Heartland Out. Pat, thanks for for joining us. Capri, I know you and your sister for many, many moons from NIAF. And for for the listeners that don't know, that's the National Italian-American Foundation. We are a close-knit group, and um, it's like the Olive Garden when you're here, your family. Although we none, none of us needed the Olive Garden, right, Pat? That's so true. That that was that was a fantastic <laughs> opening. Yeah, absolutely. That hits the nail <laughs> on the head. Well, I'm really glad that you're going to provide us with some historical context and drop some knowledge because, you know, I can talk and I will talk about my own personal story and uh, as being an Italian American from the Midwest and and my food traditions, but um, I want to provide, as I said, a little bit of context, which is where you come in. So tell us a little bit about when, why, and where Italian immigrants came into the Midwest. I was thinking a lot about this. And I think that um, 
the first thing that entered my mind was what defines the Midwest? Like, what is the Midwest? Oh, we, and, we have this. We, I mean, and, and I will say for the purposes of this show, um, it is basically the, it's from Ohio West to uh, essentially the Plain States, the Dakotas, Kansas, Nebraska. Um, so if you're thinking about P- Pittsburgh, I want to hear your thoughts, but Pittsburgh is not officially in this. Exactly. But I think that gastronomically, my qu- what, what, what was resonating in my mind was this. Ohio is kind of like the transition point. That's true. Because Ohio, you could take from Cleveland all the way east and tack it on to Pennsylvania and it would fit. And Buffalo to Cleveland fits. There's a certain culture that goes around right. the lake. Right. And gastronomically, I would say that I would put Cleveland. I think Cleveland is kind of like I said, you're a transition area because that's where I would say the East Coast Italian experience kind of ends on Route 80. And like, why, so why is this important? Because the Midwest, it, it got two different. There's two different ways of immigration geographically and then time-wise. The Midwest got a lot of people from Northern Italy. Um, Chicago got people from Piemonte, um, people from Tuscany, the area around Lucca. Uh, probably most prominent at all, of all that the area um, St. Louis has a, a huge population from Lombardia. Now, hmm. for the people who don't, who are not familiar with Italian food, is that there's really no such thing as Italian food. Italy is a country of regions, and within regions, from village to village, the food changes. There's similarities, but from one town to the other, which are in walking distance, a dish will change. So regional Italian food comes to the Midwest. Um, so we have the Northern Italians, the other big group. Now, so if we take Cleveland, Cleveland has people from Abruzzo, people from Southern Lazio, which is really Northern Campania. They have a very diverse, they have more from diverse regions of the South. Right. These are my people, by the way. Yes. Calabria. <laughs> now, if you, but if you go into maybe Omaha, um, St. Louis, Kansas City. Kansas City has a huge Sicilian population. Omaha mm-hmm. has a huge Sicilian population. A lot of the Midwest, um, once you take Ohio kind of out of the mix, there's, they either have Northern Italians or they have Sicilian. Interesting. See, I've learned something new just from these last few seconds of this interview. That's why they call you the walking encyclopedia, because I'm so used to my own backyard and my own personal food ways of, of Southern Italy, we're not Sicilian at all, uh, but most of the Italian Americans in my immediate communities in Northeastern Ohio are from these specific Southern European, or excuse me, Southern Italian regions. So exactly why we want to provide this larger context, because those foodways in, from, that come in from Northern Italy are going to be very different. Now, Chicago is also interesting because Chicago has people from Campania, which is the area around Naples. Right. You had people from Basilicata, you know, um, Melrose Park. So that part of Illinois is a little bit more like Cleveland with a diversity. But the rest, if, if the, the rest of, um, I know Minnesota had people from the north of Italy, but the rest of, of, of the Midwest, the southern Italian is synonymous with Sicilian. Now, what happens is people begin to use the word Italian cooking. And it, it takes away the diversity and, and the uniqueness of particular, of particular regional cuisine. For example, and I was thinking a lot about this. I have two theories. My one theory is that Chicago deep dish pizza 
which is a completely different animal than what a New York pizza is. Right. The reason why that's pizza, a whole that's a whole episode in and of itself. Episode. That's not for this show. <laughs> deep dish pizza. Peep, what happened is in Italy, you made all bread in Italy with sourdough bread. You think of sourdough bread today as something that comes out of San Francisco. But before really the um, Leave it to the Beer, which was um, yeast made from um, the beer process, is the first commercial yeast that kind of comes into Europe. And that's kind of tied to the Napoleonic Wars, being able to make bread com- um, in large scale for troops. That doesn't become a product on an Italian store shelf until like the 60s and 70s. From that, from the 60s all the way back until the founding of civilization, people in Italy, and it's made a huge comeback that you sourdough starter to make their bread. So you make bread, you take off a little piece of, of, of the bread, and that becomes the starter you use for, um, for the next time that you make bread. Now, I, I thought you were going to say that that's the way that you taste the sauce, because that's how we taste the sauce. That's when the bread is made. That's if the bread is made. <laughs> So what happens if you're in a village, uh, you need a piece, you, you're making bread that day, you bar, you bar some of the sourdough starter. Now, bread, you would remember, bread is the basic food that you feed your family with. Um, because bread is what, uh, Italian food is basically for the poor people of the time of the immigration, the 1880s, so let's say right before World War One, where the Midwest gets all these people from the south of Italy and from the north of Italy as well in a small, much more, small proportion. Bread is what you eat. It's what fills you with the veg- with vegetables. You maybe have meat two, three times a year, maybe. Um, so bread making is very important. What happens is bread making is an all-day event. You make enough of bread to last you anywhere from a week to about nine days, sometimes two weeks, because the bread made with the sourdough starter stays fresher longer. If you're making bread all day long, you're exhausted at the end of the day or during the day. So what happens is you take some of that bread dough, you put it in a steel pan, which your blacksmith would make you. So the pans you had were made by a blacksmith, or if you had pots that went over the fire, they were they were copper tin line. They were made by a person who did this for a living custom for you. Not custom because you had money to spend on it, custom because it's pre-industrialization. And so you take some of that bread dough, you put it uh, uh, you put it in the pan, you put a little bit of oil on the bottom, maybe you put some olive oil on top, if it's in season, you put a little bit some tomatoes on top. You put some oregano on top. You might put some salted anchovies on top. Remember, Sicily has a lot of salted anchovies. Shaka is the anchovy capital of Italy, probably the anchovy capital of the world. Um, or you put a little bit of tomato sauce on top, put a little bit of cheese on top. You stick that in the oven, and that becomes dinner at night. Right, That's it, or, or maybe your snack. So I, I want to stick on this for a second because you're talking about bread and we talk about the Midwest being the, quote, breadbasket of, of America. And I'm curious to know if you happen to know uh, if Italians and their bread making in the Midwest adapted in any way to, you know, the, the grains that they had available to them uh, in the Midwest for the, those different flours. I mean, wheat in certain aspects of, of the Midwest is very abundant, for example. Sure. Well, number one, the big thing in Italy is that um, in Roman times, the flour they used for bread was much softer than what we would use today, the high-protein flours that we use today. That's why if you go to Pompeii, the bread is kind of a low bread. It's not that big, high, yeasted loaf with big air pockets that people think of today. So what changes that? Semolina comes in, dorm wheat comes in, it comes into the Arabs through Sicily. Now, you mix durum wheat with a soft white flour, and then you get a beautiful loaf of bread. 
um, that's kind of like if you go to Italy, the really old recipes before the strong protein flours came in after World War II are the mixing of the semolina, the storm wheat, right? wheat, and you get this beautiful loaf of bread. Um, also, if you take pre-World War I, um, you, the wheat that you grew was from wheat varietals that were passed down within families and within villages. So mm -hmm. from town to town, the wheat varietals changed. So if you're in Sicily, you're going to use a lot of, you're going to use a lot of dorm wheat. If you're in southern Italy, Calabria, Basilicata, you're using a flower variety that may only exist within 10 miles of where you live, and which you harvest by hand that doesn't have a name. Remember, right. by the time that so, the, so, the, so that's not going to be necessarily readily available in St. Louis. No, it's not, it's not going to be readily available in St. Louis. But the U.S., before World War I, had some great flowers. Take red turkey, red fife, stuff that was in, um, that's still being grown in Canada that's kind of coming back. These heritage wheat, um, from the research that's been coming out, they're much better for people with um, sugar issues, glucose issues, celiac hmm. issues. You're not guaranteed that it, it's going to be good for all those people, but it seems to be much more agreeable to um, their health compositions than the, the modern flowers we have today. So now, remember, the Italian word for hard flour is Manitoba. You have to Manitoba, Canada. Because the U.S., um, Italians bought hard wheat, white American flour. When I say American, I mean the U.S. and Canada. Because you think Manitoba is kind of geographically very much the Midwest. Into the American heartland, they buy those flowers because um, they're strong. So almost in a sense, is American flowers wind up back in Italy. The same with semolina. Italy cannot produce enough of its own durum wheat. So Italians, even to today, Italian pasta produce will buy their Durham wheat from the United States. Well, there you go. That's the breadbasket of the world then, including Italy. Yes, correct. Absolutely. So that deep dish pizza, that is a, so what happens is your mother's still making bread. You have this old world way that you bring to you to the Midwest. Now remember something. These people, when they left Italy, they probably had never gone more than a few miles from their house, someplace that was a walking distance maybe a shrine or a pilgrimage shrine that was a few miles from their house. They were transported from really the medieval world, mm -hmm. southern Italy, to middle America. I mean, if you, it, it was a complete, it was like getting on a rocket ship and going to Mars. It was a complete change. Now, some of the things that change is that when you're, when you're living in Italy, the beauty of the south of Italy is um, it's warmer and you can forage in the south of Italy. You can get mushrooms. You can get like... Uh, chicory and endive and escarole all grows well you can go and pick it and you can you can you can um you can survive on that the midwest gives you something different the midwest gives you a job and right. the job gives you the capacity to buy these things so you go from a foraging culture to a buying culture the other big difference is you have you have a, a you have meat for the first time mm -hmm. I was about, and i've never had it i'll be honest with you i've never had it for all the times i've been to chicago Chicago has the famous beef sandwich. And people in Italy are kind of fascinated. You know, New Jersey has the Italian hot dog. You know, Chicago right. has the beef sandwich. Because for these people, it was the first time in their lives that they had access to fresh, number one, fresh beef. Because most of Italy, the, the milk production in Italy um, is mostly goat or sheep. Goat, get yeah. The south. And some parts, like my grandmother's family, my grandmother's side is Sorrento. We have cows. 
it's not all over. So what happens is if you don't, you eat beef because you have a cow and when the cow doesn't produce milk, you kill the cow and you eat it. If you don't have, if the cow, if you have a terrain at the south of Italy, which is not good for cows, you don't have cows in your diet. So right. for some of those people eating beef, that, that, was a, that was an American experience. Now you have beef, what do you do with it? Because when you're back in the village, you have a goat, um, you have a lamb, you have maybe three or four, and you have a couple of chickens. You might have one for Christmas. You might have the, the chicken for Christmas. You might have a goat at Easter. And the patronal feast day of the town, let's say the Assumption or St. Peter and Paul, you have another goat. Then they're the three animals that are, and usually they're the animals that were too old. So you have the chicken that's too old to lay eggs. You killed the chicken that Christmas, you eat that for Christmas. Um, you either have a, a young baby lamb that you need to kill in the spring because you need the entrails of the stomach to make cheese. And then you have a you have um, either a castrated goat or a capon or whatever that you can eat for one of the other feasts. Capon is big in Italy for Christmas. And that's that's the three times a year you have meat. So now you come to the Midwest and you have not only you have a, a diet that's really heavy in meat, and you can have it all the time. You can have it every day if you want. So, so, so how did this change? Yeah. How, so how did this change then um, or inform oh, really? the Italian-American, you know, uh, diet, not just the diet, but just the, the dishes that you would see um, in the Midwest that were made by Italian-Americans? So some of these things, you know, we certainly made. But we never, we didn't do anything with this beef sandwich like Chicago. So, you know, everybody has, everybody has their own thing. So just tell us quickly about um, some iconic dishes in the Midwest that you could, re- you know, relate back to Italian-American immigration. One. Great. Chicken Vesuvio in Chicago, and I'll tell you why. Chicken Vesuvio in Chicago is Neapolitan lamb dish. And you take out the lamb and you put in the chicken. Now, why does this even happen? Because... Americans were not going to live on a, an, Italian, an Italian restaurant. If you base it on the very poor, very, um, I don't want to say peasant because it can be a derogatory term, the very kind of elementary uh, foods of Southern Italy, you're not going to go to a restaurant and eat cooked chicory, cooked dandelions, and a piece of bread. That was everybody's day to day diet or a bowl of lentil soup or a very simple uh, macaroni dish. An American's going to want to go in, an American meaning non ethnic. Italian, and they're going to want meat, especially in the Midwest. Now you have to figure out how to cook this thing that you only had two or three times a year, and then when you did, you roasted it. So what do you do? So I'm in Chicago. I had chicken Vesuvio for the first time. I was kind of fascinated by the concept. I looked at this in Neapolitan. It's made like a Neapolitan, um, either a wild wrap dish when you put a wild hare, the way you would prepare it, or the way you would cut up a lamb at Easter. And put it in the oven. Why I think it's a lamb dish is because the addition of peas. Remember, peas are seasonal at that time. Peas were springtime. A lot of Neapolitan lamb dishes are, are married with peas. Mm-hmm. Because you have lamb at Easter, the one time you can kill that extra lamb a year, is at Easter time, and peas are the fresh vegetable. So you either cook the potatoes and the onions with peas, you cook the peas alone with onions. Uh, in some parts of Campania, they beat eggs up with, with peas and they they like a fricassee with the with lamb so you go into chicago and you can, act, you can see that what they did was they took out the lamb which is probably foreign to a lot of american palate you have to come up with a you have to come up with a meat-based dish to make your client your make your your customers happy and you throw in some stuff from the old school but it also allowed the italian americans are creative people and it allowed them the opportunity 
um, to be creative with food. But you have to remember, they had a very limited diet in the old mm. country. So people go to Italy today and they go to Calabria or they go to Bocata, these regions, which were desperately poor at the time when these people were Of living. course, yeah. So that's left. why they left. That's why they left. And now you can go. I had a, um, I knew a woman who came from Calabria. She's born 1912, came to the U.S. in the 20s. And she said to me, her stepmother in Calabria said to her, because her mother had died when she was an infant, said to her, go to America, because in America you can eat every day. And I said to her, what does she mean by that? She goes, well, in Calabria, most of the time we only ate every other day because we didn't have enough food to eat every day. So um, you went from a limited diet, a really healthy diet. I mean, that's why Italy, these, Italy has such longevity, such blue zones, because you could, it's the Mediterranean, home of the Mediterranean diet. It's not the case today because a lot of other stuff are coming in because people have the capacity, they have the finances, and just the way international trade goes, you can get a lot more stuff today. Sure. It'll be naughty all the time. You know, remember in the south of Italy, same bread dough, right? You're in Sicily. You take a little bit of that bread dough, you fry it in oil. Why do you fry it in oil? You can't bake. Southern Italy doesn't have a real, doesn't have until the invention of the oven a baked cake tradition. Because it's hard to make a cake in an 800-degree bread oven. So you take it. That's why so many Southern, desert, Southern Italian desserts are fried. Uh, you know, the yeah. fried bread tradition. We would, and it's, right. We it's, have fried dough as well. Uh, fried dough with sugar. When so my grandmother would make pizza. You rip a little bit of the bread dough. So what happens? You put some bread in. The, you're making bread all day long. You're exhausted. You're in front of an oven that has incredible amounts of heat. You're sweating. It could be. The depths of January or August, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna be sweating in that, in that, um, outside that oven. Some bread you make pizza with, and some you take and you fry in oil because you can control the heat on the oil better than you can control the heat in the oven. You fry a little bit over the open fire in oil. You fry the dough. You have the fried dough. You put some sugar. Now remember, sugar is a special is a is a special treat. Right. The sugar, and this is for the kids. Kids have been good. They get a little bit of sugar or honey. Honey was expensive. It was hard to to, um, to harvest, but it's more readily accessible. You put a little bit of honey on top. Right, right. Well, and, and these are good examples of things that, you know, we have managed to continue the traditions in the Midwest um, and, you know, adapt them as well. You gave us chicken Vesuvio. I'm going to give you like two more minutes to give us one more um, iconic Italian-American dish that somehow lives on in the American Midwest because we're here to tell stories oh, that most people don't so, tell. So this isn't just about, you know, spaghetti and meatballs and, and, uh, you know, Chicago deep dish pizza. We want to give, we want to give people more. Well, you're St. Joseph's table. I mean, Kansas, Kansas city has a St. Joseph's table tradition. Um, Chicago does. And all those cookies, like for instance, like, uh, Oh yeah. Tell, can you, can you explain what that is for people so, yeah. that don't know it? It's a Sicilian tradition. It's not an Italian tradition. It's a Sicilian tradition for some parts of Sicily. For some parts of Sicily, Sicily had a very strong Spanish influence. The south of Italy was controlled by Spain for 400 years. And Teresa of Avila, the, during the Catholic Counter-Reformation, devotion to St. Joseph explodes in Spain, and it comes into the south of Italy. St. Joseph saved Sicily from a famine. There's a strong devotion to St. Joseph in Sicily. Towns in Sicily, certain communities and certain families, when they asked St. Joseph to intercede for them for a miracle, for a favor, in Thanksgiving, they would throw parties on St. Joseph's feast day. 
and mm -hmm. at those parties they would have food for poor people this was done at the home some communities did it in a, in a communal in a the whole town would do it, but mostly it was done at home so poor people and there were a lot of poor people they would know that if there was some kind of let's say flowers or some kind of image or sign in front of a door on saint joseph's day march 19th they could go to that house during and that's usually falls during lunch which is a time of fasting they could go into that house and there would be food just there there would be food um and it might be the only meal they've had that day or they've had in a while and one of the traditions that held on is a fig cook now they're called kuchadati sicilians call them kuchadati it is a cookie made up of um ground up dried fruit with the dried fig being the dominant ingredient right now why because sicily is the perfect weather for fig so you can't eat all the figs when they come out because they 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 kind of go bad very quickly you dry them on the roof they get super super dry you can keep them all year when, when christmas time comes or saint joseph's day comes you, you chop up almonds or walnuts almonds are all over sicily came with the arabs you chop up um the dried figs all stuff that's local you might i put a little bit of honey in you might put a little bit of sugar in sugars in sicily where again because of the arabs if you had if you had a plum tree you, you put in some dried prunes um dates some dried dates you put in all these dried apricots you mix it all together you put it in a in a um basically a pie shell like a cooking right. shell and you bake it in the oven and it's not a really sweet um cookie but it's absolutely fantastic now remember that's a very medieval way of of having desserts because it's the it's the cousin of the english fruitcake right england buys this stuff so when trade goes on with england and, and the south of italy they buy the dried figs they buy the dried fruits they buy the nuts and in england they mix it into um what's the um christmas pudding comes before the cake they mix it all together with some eggs and they boil it and that becomes the english christmas pudding which eventually becomes the victorian the english christmas cake even a little bit before that during the hanoverian era but that's really a cousin of the sicilian cuchadat right and, and, and now and now you can so and now you can find this where in the midwest sure so well kansas city can't i mean can't the reason i bring up omaha and kansas city is that people don't think of them as a tang community but they are right and uh, and they're sicilian communities and in a lot of ways either time cap you know it's another thing i love in youngstown i gotta throw youngstown in there oh don't I've worry i'm gonna Youngst cover that <laughs> i've had in youngstown i've got a sweet calzone that was made from crushed chickpeas a little bit of sugar and fry the mount carmel feast in youngstown that oh, yes. is so emblematic of of the southern italian dessert tradition before before 1900 because remember something the people that came from the south of italy to the midwest they have a photograph of what italy was like before 1900. right right so you go to these towns in italy and they're like i never heard of this of course you never heard of this it was really poor food and when you know during the the 30s or after the war during the boom of the 50s and 60s your family has a little bit more money Nike, and you have things like stoves with ovens that you can control the right you're making all this stuff that was unknown a hundred years before in your town and the old recipes that kind of rustic have died off so in certain instances um this the midwest is kind of like a uh a, 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 a ossified um picture of italy in amber of interesting of, of, of the period during the great migration well that's a great place to for us to end it there a good snapshot um that uh 
fossil and amber, as you just called it, Pat. And you mentioned uh, my hometown area, the Youngstown Mount Carmel Festival, which, which I'm going to talk about myself in a little bit. But uh, Pat, thank you for giving us so much of your time. And we appreciate all of your knowledge. You really are an encyclopedia. Thank you very much. It was a tremendous honor to be on. Have to come on our podcast next. Thank you. Have a good Anytime. Night. Now that you have a little bit more background on Italian-Americans, Italian-Americans in the Midwest and their food culture, maybe my personal story will have a, make a little bit more sense in the context of the show. As I've said time and again throughout the episodes, I am from Northeastern Ohio, uh, near Cleveland, um, in a place called the Mahoning Valley, um, between Cleveland and Pittsburgh. Uh, my great-grandparents came over from different parts of Italy, central and southern Italy, as well, actually, as uh, parts of what was considered Ukraine at the turn of the 20th century. And they came over for economic opportunity in the growing industrialization uh, in the steel mills uh, throughout um, what is sadly called the Rust Belt um, in parts of the Midwest. So growing up with my Italian grandmother, food absolutely was the centerpiece of our culture, our family, and our traditions. I, uh, I cooked with my grandma all the time, along with my sister. We did all of the different Italian dishes from seven fishes at Christmas Eve on special occasions to making uh, sugared fried dough on a whim to obviously making our own uh, sauce for um, a rigatoni or spaghetti. We have our own version for meatballs and lasagna uh, that we do that is specific. I'm not going to share all those state secrets with all of you. But even though we made all of those traditional Italian dishes, we also made um, all of the things that you would consider um, standard mid-20th century American fare. Um, So the meatloaf, the macaroni and cheese, the jello, all of those things um, that you think of when you think of uh, 1950s Americana. My grandmother made all of those too. Really, I think, again, we're not special. We're very ordinary uh, in telling the American story, the Midwestern story, as um, our ethnic flavors became part and parcel of a, uh, a larger foodways landscape. Um, so, you know, as much as we made traditional foods, we also made these American foods. And today I have all of my grandma's cookbooks. Um, many are very um, well-known from uh, the mid-20th century, Better Homes and Gardens, McCall's, Betty Crocker cookbooks from the 50s and 60s. Maybe you have some of these um, from your own collection, from within your family that have been passed down. And um, so with all of these, you know, I have handwritten notes in the, in the margins from my grandmother. Um, and this is part of how we can carry on our tradition with the Italian traditions. None of that stuff is written down. It's passed down grandmother to mother to daughter, um, all of us learning, um, you know, by hand and by seeing no real measurements were taken. Uh, And again, I know that this is a very common story, but when it comes to Italian-Americans in the Midwest, and again, in my little corner of the world in Northeastern Ohio, um, there are a lot of Italian-Americans. And as such, um, you can get a lot of Italian specialties in regular grocery stores, as well as specialty stores as well. We have a number uh, in, in my immediate hometown, and you can basically 
um, throw a rock and hit an Italian festival within any 30-mile radius in northeastern Ohio. I can think of at least five um, that happen in the summertime in uh, a three-county radius, um, and all of them have their own distinct um, specialties um, that we all love and that we all look forward to. Churches play a huge role in these festivals, like many other ethnic festivals. But again, uh, festivals are a way that ethnic cultures have managed to integrate and uh, show their flavors to other uh, groups, maybe not Italian-Americans, but across the area. Because one thing, again, that does bring us together is these foods. And these different festivals, whether they are Italian festivals in Northeastern Ohio or Czech festivals in Kansas, they are ways in which these ethnic identities become part of the Midwestern foodway identity. So I just wanted to share a little bit of my story, my experience uh, with all of you um, to let you know that... um, there is a good reason for my passion behind food and behind this show. And um, just again to remind you how thankful I am for you listening uh, to Eat Your Heartland Out every week and every episode. Thanks again for tuning in. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.